asking the right question can greatly impact your future. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program, a week and a day after Hamas's heinous terror attack, Israel continues to strike Gaza and rockets continue to hit Israel as the world watches for a ground invasion to begin. Let's get the latest live from Israel and then we will talk to Richard Haas about the global politics at play, the influence of America, Saudi Arabia, Iran and others in this conflict. Then. Historian Rashid Khalidi will join me to talk about Palestinian politics and the reaction of the rest of the Arab world. Also, just how did Israel's much-lauded intelligence apparatus miss the signs of an imminent, enormous Hamas attack? I will talk to the Israeli investigative reporter Ronan Bergman. Finally, the history of Hamas, how the Islamist group came to control Gaza and why it was able to pull off last week's terror attacks. We'll explore with an expert. But first, here's my take. Hamas's brutal and inhuman attack on Israel last week took the world by surprise. Most importantly and tragically, it took the Israeli government by surprise, which meant a delayed response to the slaughter of its civilians. But this was no black swan event. Instead, as the scholar Amy Ziegart notes, it was a white swan, something utterly predictable. This is the fifth war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza over the last 15 years. Israel controls air, land and sea access to the Strip. Israeli intelligence is supposed to have an extensive network of informants in Gaza. So what happened? We'll need time to reach a full assessment, but it does appear that the Netanyahu government was so focused on judicial overhaul at home and a Saudi deal abroad that it ignored the possibility of an upheaval in Gaza, despite allegedly receiving warnings from Egypt. Professor Dmitry Shumsky of Hebrew University writes more provocatively that for years Netanyahu developed and advanced a destructive, warped political doctrine that held that strengthening Hamas at the expense of the Palestinian Authority would be good for Israel. This approach divided the Palestinians, undermined the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, and made it easy for Netanyahu to claim there was no path to a Palestinian state. Shumsky cites a Jerusalem Post report that at a Likud party meeting in 2019, Netanyahu made clear that he supported the money that the Qatari government was sending to Hamas. That way, Bibi is reported to have said, Israel would foil the establishment of a Palestinian state. Tal Schneider references the same meeting and also notes that most of the time, Israeli policy was to treat the Palestinian Authority as a burden and Hamas as an asset, like Israel's current finance minister once asserted. The Netanyahu government was pursuing a policy premised on the notion that it could ignore the Palestinian issue and make a deal directly with the Gulf Arabs, who were increasingly nervous about Iran's rise in the region 
and eager to tie up with Israel's booming technology-driven economy. The assumptions behind that strategy exploded last week. But there is a broader backdrop for last week's terror attack. For the last two decades, the Middle East has been shaped by Washington's actions, above all by the Iraq war and the subsequent withdrawal of American power. The war upset the delicate balance between Iran and the Arabs and the Shiites and the Sunnis. When the U.S. toppled Saddam Hussein's Sunni-dominated government in Baghdad, Iran gained unprecedented influence in Iraq, which is majority Shia. Then began the American retreat from the Middle East, which left a vacuum in the region into which many players entered. Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Israel, each trying to promote its own interests. We think of the world as having been reasonably stable for these last two decades until Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine. But that is not true of the Middle East, where the last two decades have been particularly bloody. Hundreds of thousands died in Iraq. Then came the Syrian civil war, which displaced more than 14 million people and killed still more hundreds of thousands. That was followed by a war in Yemen, which quickly became the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And in all of these crises and conflicts, regional players have picked sides, trying to maximize their advantages and bleed their foes. We're seeing a worldwide contest between the forces of order and disorder. Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas are trying to erode the international system. If Hamas succeeds, it will encourage others, Hezbollah, the Houthis, to flex their muscles as well. Defeating Hamas is a daunting challenge. That terrorist group is hoping for a massive Israeli overreaction that produces thousands of civilian casualties and bogs down Israeli troops. Hamas is also hoping for the collapse of any possible deal with Saudi Arabia. The more brutal Israel's response, the more likely it is that that deal will collapse. Israel's goal should be to respond to Hamas, deal with the Palestinian issue in a way that still allows for the resumption of negotiations on Saudi normalization. That is the strategic prize. The establishment of normal relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia would be the severest setback for Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. One lesson is clear. The United States cannot walk away from the Middle East entirely. It can forswear military interventions, and it can recognize the centrality of Asia, but it needs to remain politically and diplomatically active in the region. American engagement is a stabilizing force in the world. For those unconvinced, look at the emerging post-American Middle East. Go to CNN.com Farid for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. The Palestinian Ministry of Health said early Sunday that 300 people had been killed and another 800 injured in Gaza over the previous 24 hours, the majority of them women and children. This brings the death toll there to nearly 2,400, while around 1,300 have perished in Israel thus far. Israel has ordered 1.1 million residents of northern Gaza to leave 
and it says it struck more than 100 military targets overnight in Gaza. The IDF says Israel was fired on by Lebanon today, and Hamas claims to have fired a barrage of rockets Sunday at the Israeli city of Terort. Joining me now from Tel Aviv, where air raid sirens recently sounded, is CNN's senior international correspondent, Sarah Sedna. Sarah, um, tell me, if you, you've talked to a number of IDF uh, people. What is the goal, as they describe it, of what appears to be an imminent ground invasion? The goal, they say, uh, is very simple, according to the Israeli military, and the goal is to rid Gaza of Hamas forever. Uh, that is the ultimate goal. What they will not say and, and, and have not said is what that means and how that is going to happen exactly. We have seen the airstrikes, of course, where they say that they have been trying to target uh, Hamas, uh, areas of Hamas, trying to, to knock out their capabilities. But they won't say what happens uh, in a ground incursion, which they say uh, just yesterday said, look, we are prepared for the next stages of war. Uh, there's only one left because they've been hitting Gaza from the sky and hitting Hamas from the sky. That is on the ground where there have been about 300,000 troops, Israeli troops, that have amassed there. Uh, and so you look at this scenario, uh, if they go in on the ground, and it seems to be imminent that they will, what happens once they're there and if they are able, which they've been trying to for many, many, many years, rid uh, Gaza of Hamas, what happens? Do they stay? Do they try to govern? Um, it, it is a very, very, very complicated scenario uh, as this war rages on now. Fareed. Sarah Seidner, thank you. That was, uh, your reporting from there has been terrific, and I thought your conversations with the IDF spokesman were very illuminating. Thank you. Uh, stay safe. Next on GPS, I'll dig into the strategy, the diplomacy, and the likely next moves with Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified Financial Planner Certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Secretary of State Blinken is engaging in shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East. He arrived in Israel on Thursday, then traveled to Jordan, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the UAE, and Egypt, and he is going back to Israel tomorrow. He says that among his goals are preventing the conflict from spreading, getting humanitarian aid to Gaza, and securing the release of hostages. Meanwhile, the USS Gerald Ford, an American aircraft carrier, sits in the eastern Mediterranean, with its strike group and another carrier strike group is on its way. I want to bring in Richard Haas to talk about the military might, diplomacy, and much more. He is a former top State Department official 
and the President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. Richard, welcome. I, I want to pose to you um, a question about this moment, the mood, and the, and the, and the actions that follow. Because it feels to me like in some ways this is like Israel's 9-11 in the sense of the deep sense of outrage uh, and emotional uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, rage that is felt in Israel totally justifiably given the, the nature and the brutality of this terrorist attack. And I remember Americans felt somewhat similarly after 9-11. And you were one of the few people in government at the time saying, we need to think this through. We need our responses to be calibrated. We need to be thinking about the day after. Uh, you cautioned, I think you're the only senior official to caution against invading Iraq. So I'm wondering, do you think this is a moment where a similar logic applies, or is this the case where the Israelis do just need to go in big and demonstrate that, that this kind of thing cannot be rewarded? There are interesting parallels, Fareed. If anything, the Israeli reaction is even stronger than the American reaction, in part because of images of the Holocaust and what Jews have experienced throughout their history. But your point, I think, is spot on. Uh, ultimately, you've got to be smart. You've got to make foreign policy with your head as much as with your heart. So I would say, yes, the Israelis must respond. They must show that terrorism cannot stand and cannot go unanswered. But I would say go in targeted, go in discreet, go after Hamas, not the people of Gaza. Also, the Israelis need to focus on rebuilding their defenses outside of Gaza, in western Israel. The fact that this could have succeeded says that they were, they were focusing on the wrong areas. But your larger point is right. They should not get too ambitious. They should not try to remake Gaza. They've got to think this through, that even if they were to succeed militarily, and I don't think they can, if the definition of success is to root out Hamas, then they would have to think, what is the political authority that would fill the vacuum? There isn't one. That's why this, this entire approach is understandable, but I fear it will be uh, regrettable. You know, one of Donald Rumsfeld's famous uh, snowflakes memos, and I'm again sorry to bring up that old history, but it does seem so interesting, is he said the, the crucial question we have to ask ourselves is, are we producing more terrorists than we are killing with our actions? And I have to say, you look at some of those images in Gaza, and again, totally justifiably, you know, understandable how uh, outraged Israelis are, but the question is, what is the effect on the ground um, in Gaza among kind of Palestinians? You've got 2.2 million in Gaza. No, you're, you're exactly, you're right. I also worry about some other effects. I, Israel has the high ground right now. It has virtually unconditional American and international backing. You know and I know that won't last. Calls for a ceasefire will grow louder by the day. I also think that if Israel does a large operation in Gaza, it increases the odds of war widening. I fear it will be difficult for groups like Hezbollah to sit still. They'll feel the need to somehow get into the act lest they look weak while Hamas does everything. And it's not in the American interest, it's not in the Israeli interest for this war to widen. So here, another awkward thing here, Fareed, is I actually think the Biden administration, which has been so supportive of Israel in public, the president's speech I thought was his best speech, I think in private, they have got to speak uh, as only friends can speak to one another and be extraordinarily direct about what, in our view, is wise but also not wise for Israel to do.
Let me ask you, let me take the other side of the, of, of the position you're advocating. Tom Friedman had a column in which he says, look, the Israeli goal, and I think this is probably based on Israeli sources, is to deliver such a punishing response to Hamas that it feels it can never do this again. And the argument is that that is what Israel did with Hezbollah. Uh, and Hezbollah has been quiet since since those de- devastating, you know, I can't remember how many days of bombings. Um, what do you make of that argument? Look, it, it's possible, but I think it misunderstands the nature of Hamas. Hamas, uh, this is their identity. This is their DNA. And my view is in some ways, even if in the short run they're degraded, which they ought to be, I fear that in the long run it reinforces their argument that they're the only game in town when it comes to promoting Palestinian interests, however misguided it might be. If Israel, though, I'd say this, Farid, if Israel's going to do something very hard and large against Hamas, then it needs a political track. It needs a complementary policy. It's not enough just to defeat the terrorists. There's also got to be something that's been obviously missing from Israeli policy for more than a decade now, which is a serious political effort to deal with the larger Palestinian issue. You just can't beat back terrorism. You have to show there's an alternative path that actually has a chance of succeeding. What about the issue of Saudi normalization? And one of the things I've been struck by is um, the uh, MBS, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, made some very strong statements in support of the Palestinians, which frankly I have never heard him make before. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but it's, it was striking to me. He had a phone call with the Iranian president. If if you were trying to get those two countries together, you know, which has seemed impossible, um, is normalization uh, completely off the table? I also want you to uh, to expand that too. I was struck by the fact that nobody has talked about any of the countries that did recognize Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, uh, withdrawing that. So it does seem that the Gulf Arab, Arabs are keeping their eye on the prize, which is they want to have normal relations with Israel. A hundred percent. But I think with the Saudi policy, both the public statement, which was quite supportive of, of the Palestinians, didn't express anything about Israel, the call with Iran. I think that shows that even the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is worried about getting too far forward in his skis here and getting out of sync with his own population. And that ought to be a warning sign. For the last few years, almost all Middle East diplomacy has been from the top down, if you will, from the governments, ignoring the Palestinian issue. And I think what we may be seeing, Fareed, is the limits of that approach, that sooner or later, the Saudis and others are going to be held back because the, the Palestinians still hold considerable influence over Arab populations. And you raise a larger question. Could there be some stalling or reversing of those countries that have entered into uh, relations with Israel? Well, we've already seen pauses in normalization. But if there were something that spread to Islamic holy places, I don't think that what's been accomplished so far is, is ir- irreversible. Richard Haas, always a pleasure to listen to you or learn from you. Thank you. Next on GPS, how is the Arab world reacting to the events in Israel and Gaza? What is the likely reaction if there were an Israeli ground invasion? I will speak with the well-known historian Rashid Khalidi in a moment. Protesters took to the streets throughout the Arab world this week to stand in solidarity with Palestinians. I've asked Rashid Khalidi to help us understand the Palestinian and Arab reactions to this escalating war in the Middle East. 
He's a professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University, whose most recent book is The Hundred Years' War on Palestine, A History of Settler Colonialism and Resistance, 1917 to 2017. He is Palestinian-American and has family in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Rashid, welcome. Before we get to Gaza and uh, the West Bank, I, I do want to ask you something that I think uh, a lot of people in America have wondered about, which is uh, why is there not stronger Palestinian outrage about the, the Hamas's terror attack, the brutality of that attack, the way in which it really seemed to be utterly indiscriminate, women, children, um, th there was a hope that if Palestinians were looking for a, a different path, they would at least this would be one thing you could they could condemn. How would you respond? I think the utter hypocrisy of the West in ignoring indiscriminate killing of infinitely larger numbers of Palestinians, four thousand of them, mostly civilians, killed in Gaza since two thousand six by aerial bombardment from Israel has desensitized people. They, they feel that there's, there's a, a complete lack of attention to Arab humanity. Um, so far, 2,300 Palestinians have been killed, most of them civilians. And we see very little of the kind of moral condemnation that the killing of hundreds and hundreds of Israeli civilians has provoked. So I think that the reaction is partly a reaction to that, and partly a reaction to the fact that no political horizon has been offered to the Palestinians for decades. They're basically told, you will be subjugated, you will be second-class citizens, if that, you will be dispossessed, we will take your land at, at will. And the United States has basically not just supported, but financed and armed that process. So people in the Arab world, when they see no political horizon, um, are willing to turn to Hamas, willing to turn to, to acts that, uh, that in normal times people would consider horrific. But they see the horrific toll that has been inflicted on Gaza by siege 16, 17 years, by periodic bombardments, killing hundreds and hundreds of innocent civilians. And uh, I think they say, well, where's the, where's the, humanity is humanity. If you want us to condemn the killing of civilians in Israel, what about the killing of civilians in Gaza and elsewhere in, in the occupied territories? But surely the right response, Rashid, would be to condemn the killing of civilians in Israel and in Gaza. In other words, not to be indifferent to both. I, I don't think people are indifferent to both. I don't think that's the issue. I think that they feel that these demands for condemnation of the horrific terrorist massacres by whoever it may be, Hamas in this case, um, are never uh, matched by uh, demands of Israeli spokesmen, of Israeli politicians, of Israeli academics for condemnation of the horrific terrorist massacre of, in this case, 720-something children in the last six days in the Gaza Strip. If this is horrific and terrorist, that is horrific and terrorist. I, I hate, I, I, I abhor the idea of the killing of civilians. But civilians are civilians. Children are children. Jewish children are not important, more important than Arab children. Jewish civilians, Israeli civilians are not more important. But that's the way the West is treating this, uh, unfortunately. Let and me, that let hypocrisy, me ask, uh, unfortunately, undermines undermines the whole this whole argument. Let me ask you about the the, the, the question of the political option because this is I mean there's so much heat around this that I want your I want your take. Um, it is all true, not the Netanyahu government, I will grant you, but two prior governments, the Omer government and Ehud Barak, 
did try to make a, what I think was a serious offer of a, of a Palestinian state. And in both cases, the Palestinians essentially walked away. Um, Abbas, uh, from what we can tell, never responded to Omert, and, Abu Maz- and uh, Arafat essentially launched uh, an intifada. So isn't it fair to say that the uh, efforts by different Israeli governments than this one, not Netanyahu's, were not met by Palestinians in a, in a productive way? Well, I, I, I can't, in the two minutes that we're going to have, I can't go into the details. But none, none of the Israeli proposals, nor from Rabin, nor from Omert, nor from Barak, uh, uh, involved complete Palestinian sovereignty and independence. None of them involved end to occupation. None of them involved an end to settlements. Uh, you can't have a Palestinian state with hundreds of thousands of Israelis settled there. You cannot have a Palestinian state if you don't control your borders. In other words, what was on offer was never anywhere near the minimum of what is required for a just, equitable two-state solution. That was never on offer in any of these Israeli offers, however far they went. I could go into detail if you want, but no, I think that's the problem. And, and the last thing I'll say is these things were quite a while ago. We've been 10 or 15 years without anything of this sort being offered by anybody. I want to ask you about your family in, in Gaza um, and what you're hearing on the West Bank. Well, um, I have more family, obviously, in, in the West Bank than in Gaza. Um, these are in-laws who are in Gaza. They seem so far to be safe. Um, they've, some of them had to move. Um, in the West Bank, the situation is quite terrifying. Uh, 16 people were killed yesterday. Um, a couple of hundred of people have been killed in the West Bank in the last week. Um, settlers are roaming un, un, unchecked, uh, armed settlers, and um, people are very afraid. Um, give me a, I'm, uh, we're running out of time, but I do want your take on this issue of a wider war. Do you see the, do you worry about that? Is that a prospect? I think we are seeing ethnic cleansing in Gaza. Uh, a million people have been displaced already. Israel, Israeli strategists and generals have talked about emptying Gaza, about moving a large part of the population of Gaza. If that happens, heaven forbid, and if the casualty rate continues to climb, uh, there is a possibility of an expansion of this war, not just to Lebanon, but pa- perhaps even wider. Uh, and I think that people should think very carefully about what happened the last time this level of ethnic cleansing took place in 1948. It produced Arab-Israeli wars that went on and on and on from 48 until this, until this day. Um, people, people should be aware that if you move that number of Palestinians, the rage and anger in the Arab world will not abate. Arab governments that are undemocratic and unrepresentative may kowtow to Washington, but people in the street are not going to. And we've seen that in huge demonstrations in Baghdad and Sana'a and Amman, all over the Arab world, even in Egypt. So I, I, I think we should be very careful. What we're allowed to see on American TV screens is not the full picture of what's going on in Gaza, because Israel has kept reporters out. Um, the, the death toll keeps going up, and the, 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 the expulsion of people, if it's made permanent, means that we're going back to a 1948-type scenario, and that's terrifying. That ethnic cleansing created this conflict in a certain respect, and I I shudder to think of what might come if that happens again. Rashid Khalidi, thank you for being on. Thank you for sharing your perspective. Next on GPS, Israel's intelligence-gathering abilities are said to be among the world's best. So how did the country not see the horrific Hamas attacks coming? We'll hear from Ronan Bergman who will have some answers when we come back. 
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Israel has one of the most sophisticated spy networks in the world. It spends billions of dollars each year on military technology and talent, all to protect itself in what can be a hostile neighborhood. But last Saturday, Israel was blindsided. Joining us to understand what went wrong is Ronan Bergman, one of Israel's leading investigative reporters. He's a staff writer for The New York Times Magazine. He's covered the country's intelligence agencies for decades. His most recent book is Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Welcome, Ronan. Simple question to you. You are the man to ask this. What happened? How did Israel not anticipate this attack? So, you know, for it, it happened exactly... 50 years and a day after the previous, but was considered until last Saturday, the biggest blunder in the history of Israeli intelligence. The surprise attack on the 6th of October, 1973 of Egyptian and Syrian army. The result is amazingly, frighteningly the same. A surprise strategic attack that Israel knew nothing about and caused Israel unbelievable damage. But it's different. 1973, there was a lot of information much intelligence from all kinds of intelligence. They saw the Egyptian army, they saw the Egyptian, the Syrian army, but they interpreted the intelligence differently. This case, there was nothing until the last night where there was some, some kind of a scarce alert. Israel was either not monitoring the right channels, not recruiting the right agents, or maybe it was Hamas who learned from previous experience, who learned from his masters in Tehran, the Quds force of the revolutionary guard, and was able either to create a parallel channel or maybe even understanding which channel are under the surveillance of Israeli intelligence and feed those with false information, with uh, information that made Israel believe that Hamas, relatively to Hamas, is under one of those moderate, relatively moderate, that Hamas doesn't, he, they said, he's deterred. This, the, just uh, five days before the attack, the national security advisor of the country said in an interview, Hamas is deterred. He knows what would happen to it in another case of defiance. Well, he didn't know. The national security didn't know anything. And so no intelligence, no ability to understand. And we are talking about massive operation. 2,000 perpetrators crossed the fence that day. So there were... 3,000 at least people involved. These must created intelligence noise, and none of that was picked up by Israeli intelligence. You, you've pointed out in a, in a very interesting article in the Times that Hamas also seems to have known more about Israel than most people realized, uh, that they had maps. For example, there's this photograph of a Hamas uh, operative terrorists looking at a, at, a, at a map, which is clearly fairly detailed. They knew about the kind of weaponry. Um, tell me, yeah, there's, a, there's the picture uh, we're showing of that map. Um, but tell me what you think this, first of all, 
you know, how did they get that? And what does that suggest about ground operations? In other words, if Hamas had planned this carefully for the attack, can we imagine or assume that they will have prepared for what they assume would be a likely Israeli invasion? Um, we'll start first with this kind of leakage, massive leakage of information from Israel to Hamas. The ability of Hamas to understand what are the vulnerable points on defense, how to cripple the cameras and the, the automatic machine guns, what sort, what base it should attack to create this uh, kind of blind spot, this fog that and didn't allow the commanders, the ones that were not killed, to understand that massive troops are just crossing the, the fence. But you, um, from the, the story that uh, Patrick Kingsley, the New York Times bureau chief in Jerusalem and I uh, published, this is, this is coming, those pictures are coming from a GoPro that counterterrorism unit of the Israeli army took from the head of a Hamas team leader shortly after he was killed. Now, what it shows, it's a group of Hamas perpetrators, 10 of them on five motorcycles, going, they're not stopping in the way they have a, a specific goal, which is a secret intelligence hub, not identified on maps. They go there, they don't go to the main gate, they know to go to the side, to a, a side gate that is not meant, exploding that, going into the base, looking for the bunker, the secret bunker, and when they don't find it, the commander tells one of his soldiers, give me the map, and he's holding a map of that base. Now, this, is, this could be a map based on satellites, but the identification, where is the secret bunker? How to get there? And we have this from all other uh, groups, designated groups that crossed the fence, uh, the broken fence in 40 different places uh, that day. Hundreds of different groups, each allocated to a different place with a clear map of the area and understanding who are the enemies, what are the, the challenges. Um, after that, Israel would need to have a very serious um, investigation on why Israel was not able to understand Hamas secrets, while Hamas knew quite a lot about Israeli secrets and use those horrifying, horrifying videos. Those videos are not coincident on the, the social, uh, uh, the social web, the social network. You see, well, Ronan, even have, when they raided that base. Sorry, Ronan, we have a, we have a minute. I just want to ask you about. Uh, who is being blamed here? Because I was struck by a Jerusalem Post poll. I don't know, you know, how accurate it is. And, you know, I make that caveat. But four out of five Israelis said that they held Bibi Netanyahu responsible uh, for, the, for the failure. Uh, and there seems to be a real sense that the Netanyahu government was too focused on uh, you know, judicial overhaul, too focused on West Bank expansion. They, they kind of took their eye off, the, off, off Gaza. Do you think there's something to that? Uh, more than something. And it was published so people could see that. Now, the intelligence community did, did not bring precise alert. But for months, some of it published. The leaders of Israeli defense establishment and intelligence community came to Netanyahu, showed him top classified intelligence, saying this is how Israeli enemies seize the political crisis. They believe that Israel is weak. They believe that this is the time to strike. Mr. Prime Minister, they told him, you must stop the, this so-called legal reform or judicial overhaul, because if you continue, 
they will use this opportunity to strike us. Netanyahu did not listen. In many of the cases, he even refused to see the leaders of the intelligence and the, uh, and the military. He continued, uh, contrary to the advice, he continued this legal reform. He continued to polarize the country in a way that was perceived by um, Nasrallah, the secretary general of, of Hezbollah, as here is our enemy in its low ebb, in its weakest point. If we want to strike, we, the axis of Mukawama, the axis of resistance, this is the time. I, I, we got to go, Ronan. That, that is, uh, as always, uh, it's so informative to talk to you. Keep up this, this amazing reporting you're doing. You give us stuff nobody else does. Next on GPS, what do you need to know about Hamas? How did it get so strong when we come back? Just what is Hamas? What does it believe? How was it able to mount last weekend's massive attack? Joining me now is the Reuters journalist Stephen Farrell. He was previously Reuters Jerusalem bureau chief. He's the co-author of the book Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement. Stephen, welcome. Um, take us to, you know, 1987, I think, is when Hamas is founded. This is a point at which the Palestinian Liberation Authority uh, is the PLO, headed by Yasser Arafat, is seen as the, the voice of Palestinian resistance, the main political movement. It had an armed wing. It did terrorism. What, why did Hamas, why did it get founded? And uh, what was the, you know, what was the goal? Hamas was founded in 1987 in the opening days of the first Palestinian uprising intifada. It's an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. And the aim was really clear, aims. Uh, first, they wanted all of Palestine, as they call it, from the river to the sea. They don't want part of it, like the PLO was prepared to settle for. They wanted all of it. They wanted it under their control and that they wanted an Islamized Palestinian society. So they see themselves, and the Muslim Brotherhood set them up to be um, an armed group, uh, uh, as they would put it, resisting Israeli military occupation, um, as Israelis would put it, a terrorist group. Um, and the goal is to take all the land, to Islamize their own society, and to, first of all, marginalize, and then supplant Yasser Arafat's PLO, as the leadership of the Palestinian people, simple and as that. And why did they have why did they have a, a appeal on that front? Was Arafat seen as uh, you know? Why did Palestinians turn away from Arafat? Yasser Arafat, by no means a figure that Israel uh, has uh, any great love for, had any great love for, was always deeply suspicious of. But his PLO had in the 1990s, for many different reasons, decided that they would sit down and talk, that they would negotiate with Israel. Um, they were... They agreed uh, the Oslo Peace Accords in the 1990s. Um, they were at the table and Hamas did not want that. It did not want to take some of the land. It did not want to see a more secular, more moderate Palestinian authority, a liberation organization prepared to share the land. Hamas wanted all of it. They are the hardliners of hardliners. Um, so they set about laying down the roots 
establishing their network in the 70s and 80s through soup kitchens and social work and a political wing and a religious wing through the mosques, um, laying down the, the roots. And then in the 1990s, Effectively, they bombed the Oslo peace accords into oblivion, uh, blowing up buses, sending gunmen into Israel. Uh, The Israeli right wing obviously assassinated their own prime minister. So this wasn't like it was one hardline group trying to derail the peace. There are people on both sides who, who want all or nothing. So the 90s, it bombed the peace process into oblivion. And in the 2000s, it escalated it to the point where Abbas, Yasser Arafat and his successor Mahmoud Abbas became more and more marginalized, nothing to show for negotiations, nothing to show for peace talks. If you talk to the Palestinian leadership over many years, they'll say it's an incredibly difficult job we have here. We, we, We have nothing to show the younger generation for years of peace talks. We have no Palestinian statehood. We have no freedom. We, we're under Israeli occupation. Um, Stephen, what do we have to say you, when they say... Let me ask yeah. you about a, a, a charge that is often made, which is that in its early years, the Israeli government actually helped in some ways uh, Hamas to flourish. Is that true? We looked into this when writing the book, and I think it's... And Israeli officials told us it's certainly fair to say, I think they regarded the early Islamists in Gaza as their enemy's enemy, undermining Yasser Arafat, a useful tool. So they turned a blind eye. Uh, I would, we certainly didn't establish that they armed them, or, but, but, but certainly we, Israeli official told us we warned them, we warned our leaders, do not let th- these people rise in Gaza. We've seen what happened in Iran, but the word came down, Arafat is the threat, we don't trust Arafat um, and, and our enemy's enemy. Divide and rule. Uh, we have 30 seconds, but I want to ask you, do you believe that the majority of people in Gaza support Hamas. You know, there's a, there's a lot of complicated polling here, but I just wanted you to give us a bottom line. How would you describe, you know, popular support for Hamas? I mean, it is impossible to say. Uh, so there have been no elections since 2006. Uh, anyone who trusts an opinion poll on by one side or the other, I mean, good luck. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can say Hamas was under a lot of criticism for its government. I think what it's done is calculated that by this shock and awful, terrible scenes we've seen, at the end of the day, people may blame Israel for what's happened and that they may end up benefiting out of this. And uh, that's going to be played out in the coming weeks and months. Nobody we knows. have to leave it at that. Stephen Farrell, we'll have to have you back. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. Thank you all for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So are you working with a certified financial planner, a CFP professional who meets rigorous education, training, and ethical standards, and is committed to serving your best interests to prepare you for a more secure future? Certified financial planner certification is the standard of excellence in financial planning. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.